Today we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. And uh, just to let you know structurally where we are, it is the beginning of the closing statement of his letter. He's finished the main body of the letter. It started all the way back in chapter 2, verse number 11. And what Peter does is he keeps encouraging believers to live the Christian life even in the midst of suffering. He starts the letter by saying, you ought to live the Christian life even though you suffer. And then he gives the rest of the book, he gives three giant reasons. And that's what the book of Peter is. There's First Peter, there's three giant reasons why you should live the Christian life even though you're suffering. From chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 10, he says, you ought to live the Christian life even though you're suffering because of how precious your salvation is. You're, he, he describes how valuable it is and, and that we ought to live a holy life because the most precious thing that you have is your salvation and that ought to demand out of us the very best in everything that we do, should it not? It's reason for for our very best. And, and the second reason that he said that we ought to live the Christian life was from chapter 2 until chapter 4, verse number 6, where he says and, and explains, because you you have a witness to the world. We are witnesses to the world of the saving power, the, the, the massive change wrought in our lives because of Jesus Christ and what He's done. It doesn't matter how difficult our life is. It doesn't matter our sufferings. It doesn't matter what people think of us. We are a witness to the world. It's a, it's a tremendous purpose. Have you ever thought about that? That every morning when I get up, I get to witness to the world what God means to me. Moms and dads, that's the truth you impart to your children every day you get up. What does God mean to me? Let me show you, son, daughter, by my life, what Jesus means to mommy and daddy. What, a, what an important, important purpose you have. Now, chapter 4, verse number 11, through the end of the chapter, he gives his final reason for why we should serve him in the midst of suffering, and it's because of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, by second coming, whether you believe in one stage, two stage, it doesn't matter. The, the, the time is marching towards consummation. And so we ought to live unto Jesus Christ. We ought to live holy lives because of the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's been his motivation since the beginning of the letter. Turn back with me to for, uh, chapter number 1 and verse number 13. Chapter 1 and verse 13, and I'm going to rearrange the stage here. Rachel, please forgive me for doing this if you're here. I've got a glare on my um, tablet here, so I'm going to move up. I don't know what I just did. Oh, I see. Okay. All right, so chapter 1, verse number 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at what? the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is our motivation. Our motivation for diligently living the Christian life is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now notice the opening words of chapter 4, verse 7 that we we read, John read just a couple minutes ago. The end of all things is at hand. We can paraphrase that, the end is near. 
What do you think of when you hear those terms, the end is near? A lot of people think of some long-haired, shaggy person with a sandwich sign on, a reading from the book of Ezekiel with a sign that says, the end is near. Have you ever seen those people? The first time I ever saw one was over in, in Waikiki, of all places, uh, when I was in college. I'd never, I, I grew up on an, in the middle of nowhere in Illinois, and so go, traveling to somewhere, and here's this tall, shaggy, scrant, looked like he probably slept on the beach kind of guy with the end of his near, and he's just reading the book of Ezekiel. It was the oddest thing I'd ever seen. If you ever did that in the past, I'm not calling you weird, okay? I'm just saying it was, it was weird to see. But in reality, when he says the end of all things is at hand, there's several things he's saying, and it begins with that word end. The word end in this, uh, this translated end is the word teleos, and it doesn't mean like the end as in a point in time. It's actually talking about a period of time. It's, it's talking about the consummation. It's, it refers to like the last stage of a process. So if you could think in terms of maybe a symphony, uh, it's the last movement before you get to the finale. We're, we're in that last movement right before the finale, and the finale is what? The second coming of Jesus Christ. We are in the end. We're in the end times. It's the culmination, the conclusion, the success, the goal, the realization, the, the final fulfillment. And so he says, the consummation of all things is at hand. This is the most relevant part uh, the most relevant thing in the world. Sometimes people tell a pastor, you know, you need to be relevant when you preach. Can I tell you something? The second coming of Jesus Christ is the most relevant event in the entire world, in entire, all of history. And so our job is to prepare people for that. Our job as believers in the body is to tell people about that. Jesus is coming back. There's no more greater relevance than that. What's the extent of that consummation? Look at it again. What does he say? He says the end of what? The end of your suffering? The end of your Christian life? No, he says literally the end of all things is at hand. What does the all things mean? All things. It means everything. The end of everything. You guys are really good at Greek. I'm amazed. I preach to a smart church. Peter doesn't mean just the end of your trials. It's not the end of your troubles. You need to live in the reality that everything is moving to the final outcome judged by the revelation of Jesus Christ. No one is exempt from that that redemptive process. And that judgment is either going to bring deliverance because of your trust in Christ or it's going to bring curse because you did not trust Christ. That's that's the the end of all things. Now notice the last two words. The end of all things is what? The end of all things is at hand. The the term at hand means approach or to draw near. The end of all things is drawing near. Now let's put this all together so that we can understand it. The the end of all things at hand means that all the major events in God's plan of redemption have occurred, and now all things are ready for Christ to return and rule. 
Again, as I said, whether that's a rapture, second coming, or just second coming, however you believe, it doesn't matter to, to this point right now. The end of all things is at hand. You need to live in that reality that everything is moving towards that final outcome judged at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus has moved the world into the last stage of salvation history. The last major redemptive event on the timeline, which was the ascension of Jesus Christ has happened, and now we're in the last times. The gospel of Christ is the reality of cosmic scope. It touches everyone. It touches everything on the planet. I'm always amazed when I go back to Romans chapter 8. The whole creation groans, waiting for that time when Jesus Christ comes back. It's not just us, believers. It's all of creation is groaning. And we can see it, can't we? Now we're in the final period. The last time, the final season before the day of the Lord. And Jesus talked a lot about it, most particularly when um, they're walking away from the Temple Mount and the disciples look at him and say, man, isn't that an amazing sight, all those stones and everything? And Jesus wasn't impressed, was he? He said, let me tell you something, no stone is going to be left upon another. And so they start asking him, well, when is this going to happen? And so Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus just begins to expound it. And this is what he says in Matthew 24, verse 44. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. We don't know when it is. We have no no idea, but we're to live our lives being ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. A few verses later in Matthew 24, I'm sorry, Matthew 25, verse 19, he says, now after a long time, and he's given a parable that, that well, let me, let me read what he says and I'll explain it. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with him. And so he's given this parable about a master who goes away to a far country and is gone for a very long time. And he shows up. That's the parable. He's the master. We're the servants. And what is the very first thing that happens when he comes back? The Bible, Jesus said, settled accounts. In other words, things are going to be judged. A few verses later, two verses later, he, he is explaining in this parable of the talents what the criteria is. And this is a criteria. You want to know how you're going to be judged when Jesus comes back? Listen very carefully. It's very clear. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So what is the criteria? There's one. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Are you being faithful to what God has called you to do? I'm thinking so much. I'm so burdened for parents of young children right now. Parents, are you being faithful over the stewardship of that young soul in your house? Are you teaching that young soul how important Jesus Christ is? It's such a, it's, it's your faithfulness in that matters. When Christ comes in all of his glory, there's a lot of things that don't matter. Really? You know that, right? It doesn't matter your college degree. It'll be meaningless. It won't matter how prestigious your job is. It won't matter if you've had a boat 
if you took wonderful vacations, if you accomplished your bucket list. It won't even matter if you feel that you lived a charmed life or a hard and difficult life. The only thing that matters is your faithfulness to God. That's it. Everything else literally fades away. It won't matter whether the Patriots cheated at the Super Bowl. Well, I better not go there. Now, what does that mean for us as Christians? What does that mean for you and me in our day-to-day life? Let me give you two implications as we jump into verse number 7 in just a moment. One implication is that we are not to be rooted in this world. This is why Peter called the, the, his recipients, he called them strangers and aliens. He did it twice. He did it in chapter 1, 1 and 2, 11. He called them strangers and aliens. Parents, I want to say a word to you. What kind of values are you imparting to your children? I'm not talking about the ones that you tell them or verbalize to them. I'm talking about your life. What values are you imparting to your children in your life? Are you teaching your children that only the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ is what's important? Or are you unconsciously teaching them that, hey, soccer and sports are of equal importance as Jesus Christ? Because during soccer season, we can miss Sunday services. So it's not quite that important. What are you teaching your children when you decide and, and teach them that summertime is for the weekends at the lake or camping and we're going to miss church because this is important? Parents, what are you teaching your children by your life and your testimony that Jesus is more important than any earthly pursuit? Let me ask you another question. Does it excite you when you see your children developing Christian character? Or does it excite you more that your child got that scholarship? These are the things, these are the values that we train and teach our children unconsciously. Would to God that we fill our church with parents who train their children by their life, by their goals and dreams and desires, that Jesus Christ and Him crucified, that is the most valuable thing. And that Jesus is coming back and I can't wait. The second implication of the return of Christ is, is that your, self, your self-worth and your identity is to be rooted in Christ and His return, and not in anything earthly. Your identity is tied to Jesus. Let me see if I can help you out just a minute. When you're in a group of people, maybe, maybe it's a new group of people, maybe it's people that you know, what do you want them to know about yourself? What do you feel that they, you know, um, I went to Harvard. Um, yeah, you know, Donald Trump and I, we're, we're good buddies. Uh, you know, I was, I was a college athlete. What are the things that consistently come up in your conversations? Because whatever comes up, whatever you have to tell people, that is where you're placing your identity. Did you know that? It's something really that we we need to think very carefully about. Your identity should be tied to Jesus Christ and not what what college your kid goes to, how many scholarships they got. Uh, You have value because you're in Christ, not because Junior's the MVP of the soccer team. 
You're a child of the King, and that identity is infinitely more value than your education, your athletic ability, your mental prowess, your ability to play music, all your crafts, your hobbies, your house, your decorating, any of this kind of stuff. None of it is as important as your identity in Jesus Christ. The simple fact that Jesus is coming back changes everything, doesn't it? Now, this is what I want to do. Peter lays out four applications to the coming of Jesus Christ. I want to read the passage one more time and point out those applications. You ready? Let's, let's look at verse number 7 again. We'll read it together. The end of all things is at hand. Okay, now he has that word, therefore. Right? It tells you what he's about to say is connected to what he just said. Did you know that, by the way, uh, kids, teens? That's how English language works when there's a therefore. Okay. Um, so when mom says therefore, pay close attention. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In other words, be live a holy life for the sake of your prayers. That's number one. That's the number one application. Number two, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. Number two application, love one another earnestly. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There's the number three application, be hospitable. What's the number four application? As each one received a gift, use it to serve one another. Use your gifts to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How intensely practical is the Word of God. And these are all because Jesus is coming back. There's the vertical component. The horizontal is this is how you treat each other. You pray for one another. You live a holy life. You're hospitable. You're loving. You're serving. Oh, so practical. Now today, I just want to hit the first one. And then we'll hit the rest of them next time uh, we talk about First Peter. But what's the first truth? Because the time is near, practice holiness so that you can pray. Look at the verse. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You know what I see here? I see an, a sense of urgency, don't you? Because the time is near, what, when there's a time, an urgent matter that needs to be taken care of, everything else just kind of drops off the map, doesn't it? I remember one time... I was a young child. I, I wish I could remember how old I was. I can't remember this. But I was out in our backyard playing. We, we lived in central Illinois. Bob, Bob knows what I'm talking about, how flat it is there. Uh, so flat, central Illinois. And um, it's a Saturday. And I remember it being cloudy. And I'm playing out on our swing set. And all of a sudden, my dad, who was working on the house, on the outside of the house, yelled at me, Jared! Get in the basement now. And I, I kind of kept playing. He said, get in the basement now. He's almost screaming at me. I'm like, why? And he said, look. And I looked up and there was a tornado headed towards our house. And my dad had all his tools outside. My toys were outside. But when there's the urgency of a tornado coming at your house, do you bother to pick up all the toys? No, the one most important thing is that you stay safe from the tornado that's coming. 
And that's the same kind of urgency that Peter's saying. Peter is basically saying here, look, Jesus Christ is coming. This is an urgent thing. Everything else pales in comparison. By the way, just to let you know, it lifted and went about uh, dropped on the other side of our house, destroyed our neighbor's barn, and he had a, a hangar with three airplanes, twisted them all up and everything. Uh, but we were fine, and they were fine, which was which was great. Um, but what are the spiritual essentials in it, in an urgent time? Number one, to be self-controlled. That word self-controlled, Peter uses, is, is to be sober-minded. It means to be in the right mind. It's, it's used of the demon-possessed man in that Jesus healed in Luke 8 and verse number 35. So the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. There's that word, that's being sober-minded. So, I'm sorry, self-controlled means to have a sober mind. The same word is used in Romans 12.3. You're very familiar with this. For by the grace of God... Uh, given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment. So to be self-controlled is is not necessarily talking about physical. He's talking about a mental thing. It's talking about um, uh, the way that we think. Now, just process that with me for just a minute. Quite literally, everything in life comes from our minds doesn't it? Our whole life revolves around the way that we think. A sound mind, sound judgment reflects a a holy alignment. And so when we have a sound mind or we're sober-minded or self-controlled, we are aligning ourselves with Jesus Christ. A a sinful, self-indulgent, um, demonic, demonically influenced world in which we live, it's very easy for us to lose our spiritual mindedness. It's a, it's a great place to lose your mental and moral balance. And so Peter says to be spiritually sane, to be self, to be sober minded, self controlled, sober judgment. What do you mean? What he means is that we need to think on God, think about holy things, think about spiritual things. The Bible tells us, by the way, that we can change our thoughts. A lot of people will try to tell me, I can't change my thoughts. That's not true, because if it were true, then the Bible would not tell you what to think about. You can change your thoughts. Now, please listen very carefully. Everybody listen. You must bring your minds captive to Jesus Christ. To the Word of God. What was that phrase you used this morning, Happy? Uh, about the uh, in me. You remember? It was great. What is it? Yeah, be in it so it gets in you. Is that what it was? Great phrase. Did you catch that? You gotta be in it so it gets in you. You have to be in the Word of God. The great characteristic of sound judgment, the great characteristic of a spiritually sane mind, it, it begins to see things in their proper proportions, in their proper priorities, in their proper perspective. It sees what's important and it orders its life by that importance. The second word that Peter uses here is the word sober-minded. Sober-minded. If you look at the word in the lexicon, it literally means the opposite of drunkenness. 
That's one of the, the standard definitions of this word. It, it means to be clear-minded. Now, it's, it's to be clear-headed. Let me see if I can make it practical for you. What does it actually mean? It means that we are not to be intoxicated by the vanities of this world. What are the vanities of this world? It can be anything, can it? The American dream. Uh, pick your political party ruling the country. Uh, great retirement. Work all your life for retirement. Live your whole life for your kids. Live your whole life for yourself. You Got to have a little bit of me time. I, by the way, where is that verse? The me time verse. Because what I read, now, now think about this. The world's philosophy would say, the end of all things is near, so therefore have some you time. Accomplish your bucket list. Seriously, isn't that what it would say? But what did Peter do? Is there anything in there about me? The only thing about me is the very first part where he says, live holy lives for the sake of your prayers, and since all the other applications, by the way, are horizontal for people in the church, the prayers are for the people in the church as well. You see, it's that philosophy. By the way, I'm probably offending some people right now, but it's biblical truth. Me time is not a biblical concept. Jesus didn't ask for me time. He didn't. And so, so we need to be other-focused, uh, uh, other-centered. Well, that wasn't in my notes. I'm sorry. Let me get back to my notes. Do you allow your mind to be soaked in the Word of God to such a degree that you are alert to the fact that Jesus is coming back? Or do you allow your mind to become fuzzy in its thinking with worldly and vain philosophies? Teenagers, college students, don't feed your minds on social media so much that your thinking is eternally fuzzy. Parents, don't allow yourselves to be sucked into the thinking of this world that my child's going to miss out if they don't play on that soccer team. They don't participate in that event. They don't go to that school. My child's going to miss out. If we don't have that vacation, my child's going to... That's what the world tells you. And it, it's, it, it fuzzies up your thinking because our thinking needs to be eternal. Now for the most stunning part of this verse, as far as I can tell. Why do we live a holy life? Why do we contemplate, uh, cultivate a holy mind? What's the answer? For the sake of your prayers. Now, I would have thought, had I not known this verse, that he would say, live a holy life so that you can be abundantly rewarded when Christ returns. Because that's what he's talking about. But that's not his application. His application is live a holy life, cultivate a holy um, mind so that your prayers are communing with God. Isn't that stunning? That is a stunning truth to me. It's so that you can battle spiritually in your prayers. Mark this down. There is a correlation between a holy mind and having communion with God. It's really hard to commune with the one that you're offending all the time with your mind, with your mouth, with your actions. 
And so there's a direct correlation between having a holy mind and having communion with, with the God of the universe. And because holiness flows out of direct communication with the holy God, then communion is, is, is hindered by a cluttered mind, an imbalanced mind, that, that which is most significant in the Christian experience is lost, a confused, self-centered mind, a mind knocked out of balance by worldly lusts, worldly pursuits, a mind victimized by emotion or passion out of control. You're, you're subject to bitterness and anger and, and lust and all these sort of things. These kind of minds are ignorant of God's truth. A mind that is indifferent to God's purposes is a mind that cannot know the fullness of the holy communion of God in prayer. And so your relationship to God is determined by the attitudes which you bring. The attitudes are the result of your thinking. Wrap that around. You bring your attitude to God. Soak your mind in Scripture so you can commune with Him in prayer. And if you're to pray effectively, if you're to commune with God deeply and spiritually, then you must think biblically and spiritually as well. And so this is basic to us. So many Christians today, are, are they're dazzled by the world's fantasies. They're swept up and, con- and confused by all kinds of ideas. Their thinking is out of whack. They're victimized by Satan's endless smoke screens. And as a result, their communion with God is just warped or hindered or sometimes even lost. My greatest times or when I'm thinking most about God, thinking His thoughts and communing with Him. Let me just, and I'm not building myself up, I'm giving you an example. As I was thinking about this, earlier this week I was reading in the book of Jeremiah. And this is, to to many, might be a strange thing. Not that I'm reading in Jeremiah, by the way. But what I'm about to say. I was reading early in Jeremiah, where God is telling the Israelites, if you do not repent... If you do not turn to me, the Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to destroy you and I will have no pity, no compassion. He literally says your bodies are going to be strung out all over the countryside like dung. That's the word he uses. There's no compassion. There's no mercy whatsoever. And I started thinking, and this is important, that Old Testament picture, that judgment, is a physical picture of the spiritual reality of somebody without Christ. That somebody without Christ will spend all of eternity being punished for their sin in hell, and there is zero compassion from God. And my next thought was, why on earth, God, did you save me? If it weren't for your grace and mercy, I would be one of those people it was such a time of worship. In my truck on the on the way to church, I was just to come to work. I was just thinking about that, praising the Lord. Why on earth did He do that for me? We are so blessed to know Jesus Christ. Doesn't that give you cold chills to think that you're not one of those if you're in Christ, but rather you're 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 going to be blessed for all of eternity? What a time of worship that was. Earthly things dimmed. Heavenly things came to the forefront. Would to God that He fill our church with people who have a sense of urgency about Christ's coming. People who order their lives and are holy in their thoughts and deeds, who are prayerful and recognize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
As Peter concluded, he is, he is, he is talking about the second coming. Look at chapter five and verse number eight. How does he conclude? This is the way he concludes. Be sober minded. Be watchful. And I didn't have time to go through this in, in my sermon, but oftentimes Jesus would say, watch and pray. Watch and pray. And I believe Peter spent so much time with Jesus. That's what he's saying here. Be sober-minded and watchful. He's borrowing uh, chapter 4 and verse 7, isn't he? Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Here he says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to devour you, dear Christian. He wants to devour you with worldly philosophy, with, with vain things. He wants to devour you by getting you your mind off of Jesus Christ and on to things that don't even matter. He wants to devour your children. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy this assembly. It's no laughing matter. It's, it's a serious thing. And so Peter says that we need to be watching constantly. We, we need to be praying constantly. Pray for the church. Pray for the children. Pray for our community. Pray for VBS coming up in, in a week. Pray for VBS. Pray for our, our, our workers. Pray for our college ministry, Taylor, and what he does on Wednesday nights. Pray for Ryder and what he does with the children, uh, the children, I'm sorry, teens. Um, I was thinking ahead of myself. And pray for Christy and the children's ministry. Pray for our nursery workers and our elders. It's not a, 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 Small thing. It's not a vain thing. Be holy for the sake of your prayers. May God fill this church with the people who are communing with God, praying to God, knowing the spiritualities of the battle we're facing. Because one day, the, by the way, the battle is won. The battle has been won. We're just waiting for the triumphal entry of the king to come back and say, look, I won and I'm here. Amen? Man, I cannot wait. The end of all things is a hand. What is it going to be like when Jesus comes back? I, God just drove it in my heart this week that it's the eternal realities that, that matter so much and nothing else. Lord, I thank you. For the Word of God, I, I don't know how else to say it. It's so, it just it, it inflames our heart with passion. It, it corrects us where we need corrected. And it encourages us. Lord, I pray that we will be encouraged by Your coming. The battle has been won. Jesus won the battle by giving His life. Rising from the dead. Now He's up in glory. Set our our minds, our affections on things above, not on things of the earth, Lord. Set our, our goals and desires to see Your holy face, to commune with the God of the universe. I pray for our young parents that You will ignite in them a passion to know Jesus Christ and to be known by Him and by extension that their children will see Christ in their life and want that same Jesus Christ. I pray for our teenagers. Lord, there are so many things pulling at them. And I, I love teenagers so much. I pray that, that you will help them to determine that Jesus is more valuable 
then even their career path, who they marry, what they do in their life. I pray for our, the, the older saints in our congregation that You will ignite in them a passion to minister to younger people like they're supposed to, Lord. And pray and pray and pray. Lord, may You be honored and glorified in our church. In Christ's name, Amen.